Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the ability to sing and uh, worship, Lord, just a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. Thank you for Stella sharing a, a little review about these uh, previous three books and um, simple ways to remember some of the lessons from those books. And um, thank you for just the ability to be together here this morning. And I pray that you would uh, help us to have something something speak to, to each of us uh, to, to put into into action or to just seek you this week. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, as we continue our series, we're going to be looking at Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the longer of the minor prophets. And so just to remind everybody, minor doesn't mean not important. It just means smaller. So this is like a long, small book or like a jumbo shrimp or something like that. So think of it that way. And also, just keep in mind with all these books, we're not covering everything that's in these books. There are whole like teaching series which could take months just on this book alone. And so I'm only sharing a foundation and some encouraging parts that I believe that God would want us to think about today. Okay, so we'll start with just getting an understanding of the date and setting of this book. Like Stella just shared about Haggai, when the temple stopped being rebuilt and then began to be rebuilt and was eventually finished for that time period. Zechariah, takes the first eight chapters take place during the same time. And there are actually specific months and dates listed in the text so that we kind of know where that happened. But the latter chapters, 9 through 14, are undated in that they don't have that specific reference. Um, but we know just based on things that are in there um, and that, that the fact that they came after the first eight chapters, that it's probably during the time period of 480 to 470 B.C., around the time of Queen Esther, which is a book we read earlier this year. So a lot of the predictions and prophecy of the coming Messiah are in these latter chapters. Now you might ask, why two prophets covering the same time period? Now we've had overlap before with the prophets that we've studied, but in this case, Haggai and Zechariah are basically on the ground at the same time, in the same place. But you, if you look at them, this little chart kind of breaks down a few things that are interesting. Haggai is a little more concrete, whereas Ze uh, Zechariah is a little more abstract in understanding. You might judge by the fact that Haggai is such a short book. Obviously, it's more concise than this longer, expanded book that Zechariah, his words, are compiled in. But I think one of the most interesting things on this list is Haggai was concerned with, it was like a present concern. We, we need to get back to work, get this temple built. And though Zechariah talked about that too, he also emphasizes more the future concern as to why that is important. So I think this is a thing to remember that God uses people with different focuses and different methods to motivate us. They can be complementary, but it's all to help move us to what God is doing, what God wants to do and involve us in. And I'm sure if you think about it, you probably have had people in your life like that who have different styles of prompting or encouraging you to do things. I was just sitting there earlier thinking, you know, 
I can't speak for everybody, but like in a family, you might have mom that wants to give you all the reasons why this would be a good thing for you to do this, and then your dad just might be like, just do it. Like, you don't, you know, the emphasis, the method is not the same, but the heart is the same, wanting the best for you. So who was Zechariah? Well, we know that he was of priestly lineage. He was born in Babylon and returned with other exiles under Zerubbabel. And as already kind of mentioned in that chart, he was a younger contemporary of Haggai. Interestingly, according to Jewish scholars, he was also a member of something called the Great Synagogue, which was a group of people that collected and preserved scripture, trying to protect the integrity of God's word. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, we don't know why, but according to the Gospel of Matthew, it says that he was murdered between the temple and the altar. So I don't don't have any understanding as to why that happened, but it's a, an interesting fact. His name actually means God remembers. The whole idea of God remembering, if you, there was a verse last week that kind of stood out in David's sharing from Haggai, I think it was 2.6, where he says, in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens. And then he goes on a couple other sentences talking about what that's going to be like, and he just says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do that. And I believe God puts things like emphasis like that of what he's doing to benefit us because we are bound by time. See, God transcends time. Somehow he's in the past and he's in the present and he's in the future all at the same time, which is something that we are not. We're not built that way. He doesn't change. What he's doing only looks different from our perspective. I think of it like this. It's... When scripture says things like, God said, I will remember my covenant, or God said, I'm going to remember my people, it doesn't mean that it's like, oh, I forgot uh, about this, and now I'm remembering, but rather it means I'm, I'm going to be faithful to this or that promise at this time. I'm remembering by acting on it right now. So even though we may get confused by this idea of God transcending time, God is not confused by it. And so a number of things that we're going to look at today are kind of future things that he wrote about that were in the future, which I'm sure Zechariah did not understand many of the things he was sharing. So what are the results of Zechariah's prophecy? Well, one, in his immediate time, we've already talked about, the temple was rebuilt. You can read about that in Ezra which says, And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. So, in addition, though, we have something else that Zechariah's prophecy provided, and that was hope. And hope is an ongoing thing, right? It doesn't just end. Hope, and in particular we're going to look at, there was hope for the Jewish people and then also hope for the Gentiles. I want to touch on one other thing that I think affects how we understand all this, and that is like this idea of an individual versus a collective mindset because it affects our expectations and it affects our hope. So let me try to explain what I mean by that. So 
we in the United States here, we have a cultural norm of individualism, right? So if you look at a number of different areas, you could look at your career, if you're, what, what's my job gonna be? I mean, I think there are people that do this, but most people do not say, what does this state need? Does the state need more doctors? Does the state need more garbage collectors? Whatever it is, no, we look at it and we say, what do I wanna do? And likewise with how we spend our time, we say, what do I enjoy doing? Not necessarily, you know, what will help the people around me? And I'd say it's one of those things where, you know, we don't really exactly think about it all the time. It, it, and we don't necessarily intend to be selfish, but our, our perspective is just very short term, I guess, very small in focus. And I think we're gonna find that as we go into this that the people that Zachariah was speaking to and the generations after that have a longer, they have a longer game, like they, they see the long term versus the initial short-term possibilities there. Also, along that line, we also find that the short-term thinking limits us in that, like, if we think about it, we can probably really only think, you know, I might have hopes for my kids, or I might have hopes for my grandkids, right? But it's really hard to see beyond that, for, at least for me. I think for most people, it's hard to see beyond two generations. Whereas um, what we're gonna see here in a little bit is when Zechariah prophesies, that actually affected people for like 500 years, actually even longer than that, because they had a vision as a collective group of people, especially as the Jewish people, they had a vision beyond two generations. And I think that's, that is really, really good for us that they did because then we can make the connection of, of how God's promises endure and sometimes they don't happen as quickly as we'd like them to. What I did want to mention though is we do want to remember there is an individualist, an individual aspect to our lives, right? Both here and in, in eternity. We see in Hebrews 9, 27 that it says that it is destined that each person dies only once and after that comes judgment. Similar thought we see in the next slide, which is in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every individual knee, I think, in my mind, will bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. And Romans continues that thought by just saying, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So when I talk about collective thinking, don't think I'm throwing out our individual response to God and judgment by God. So this idea is that God sees and interacts with us as groups. And again, that group perspective is gonna last longer than our individual perspective. And if you think about it, as we've been going through this study, we've been looking at groups, think, putting people in categories, like we'd say, you know, we've read a section about what the Egyptians were like or what the Jews of a certain time period were like, or what the Canaanites were like. Even the Ninevites, we kind of collect them as a group. And so they're like, we're, we're talking about the repentant Ninevites. Over here, we're talking about the unrepentant and condemned Ninevites. So we're using the same people group, but we're seeing them 
in a different stage in their in their journey. So in preparing for all this, I, I really got some interesting perspective from some different things that I read from the perspective of Messianic Jews about how the scripture, and in particular about Zechariah and how that all fits together. So we're going to see, in, as you read Zechariah, you're going to see all kinds of promises. Promises of, that deal with prosperity and protection. The ones that deal with peace and pleasing worship. And then there's ones that deal with provision for reconciliation and restoration. And these types of promises are intertwined and it's kind of hard to break them apart, so I'm not going to try. And maybe we're not supposed to. The first one I want to mention is in Zechariah 2, where it says, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of people and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory within her midst. Think about what that must have meant to hear that, that kind of prophecy to, to the people that, you know, had been being discouraged to build the wall. They were being threatened by their neighbors and, you know, just put down. He's, he's telling them there's going to be a day when there aren't even going to be walls around the temple. It's everything, I'm going to take care of everything myself, personally. In speaking of the Jewish people, God says, when I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries, and they will, with their children, live and come back. Third promise dealing with protection and pleasing worship and reconciliation has to do with um, when God destroys the pride of the Philistines. Zechariah says, when this happens, all the surviving Philistines will worship our God and be adopted as a new clan in Judah. And I think, wow, what joy and wonderment must the Jews be feeling to know that their enemies or at least what's left, the remnant of their enemies after they've been dealt with by God. There's a remnant left. And these, the remnant of these enemies, are they're not only going to um, worship God, they're going to be adopted by God. It's an amazing thing to think about. It's actually kind of a foreshadowing of what the New Testament talks about with the Gentile nations, you know, coming to know the Lord, why Paul went to them. Now, some of the more familiar prophecies that you will probably, like light bulbs might go off if you didn't already realize they were there, was ones to deal with peace and provision for reconciliation. It says in Zechariah 9, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. Now, this is referenced in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus says, he refers to the, to the scripture and says, this is talking about me. And so we often hear of this as the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Another one like that that's going to be more familiar to you is this one from Zechariah 11. It says, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, 
So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, throw to the potter the magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So this is referenced to Judas's betrayal of Jesus, right, for the same amount. It's a low value. If you look at Exodus 21:32, well, in Exodus 21, there's, there are a lot of verses that talk about how do we handle if, you know, this person gets hurt or this person commits this act against another, whether intentional or not. In Exodus 21:32, that number is it's the value of what you would give somebody if their slave was gored by your oxen. And so it's interesting because not only does it reference to the value of a slave, but Jesus allowed himself to be valued so lowly in order to accomplish the mission for which he came, which was to seek and save sinners. Now, I want to fast forward here to show you how hope continues. I mentioned a little bit back there how there was this long period of time where this idea of being hopeful in what uh, Zechariah had said would still come true. And so we're going to fast forward up to the time when Jesus is around, right? And the Jewish people are still looking for the Messiah. Uh, what I'm doing here is I'm just going to give you a little bullet points. I would really, in the notes, I kind of have where these different bullet points come from. They're on the second page, if you're referencing. But I really encourage you to read it because there's so much weight in, in reading the actual scripture. But again, Jesus collects a group of followers, and they come to believe that he's the Messiah. In particular, we see that Peter confesses to Jesus that you're the Christ, he says. And then Jesus shows his disciples in the different gospels, he shows them how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. But then Peter rebukes Jesus for saying these things because this is not his understanding as the way things are going to go down. Jesus says, that Peter is not setting his mind on God's purposes. Now, after the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, we see that Jesus presents himself alive to the disciples many times. This is in Acts. And at the final time that he does this, they ask, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds by saying, no, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed. He says that these things aren't going to happen now. He doesn't say they're not going to happen, but they're not going to happen now. But he says, in the meantime, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. So he gives a great commission, right? Then he's lifted up while they're looking on and they're told, hey, this Jesus is going to come back just the way that you watched him go into heaven. So they're taking all that in and then it says, that they return back to the city from the mount called Olivet. So let's remember, again, that even though this 500 years has passed by, the words of the prophet Zechariah were very much alive and known by the Jewish people. So if we go back to Zechariah, the book, chapter 14, we'll see that some really bad things are going to happen on the day of the Lord as the nations fight against Jerusalem but then something really amazing happens. It says, Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations, and on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which 
faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley, for half the mountain will move to the north, and half will move to the south. And then you will flee through this valley, and on that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem. So God is like literally going to move, split a mountain when he comes back. It says that there will be one Lord, and his name alone will be worshipped. Now we can also see in the Zechariah 14, as, as a part of this battle, that in the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survived the plague, so God has sent out plagues to deal with these enemies, it's a, a weapon that he has, and it says that in the end, the, the enemies who survived the plague will go up to Jerusalem each year, to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Shelters. So, putting Acts, uh, the, old, the, the, the Gospels and Acts and Zechariah, what, what just happened here? In Matthew, we, were, we saw that Jesus' disciples were on the Mount of Olives. They knew where they were, and they knew, they knew that, that their location when they asked if, God, if he was going to restore the kingdom at this time time or the place that Zechariah said that God would come and put his feet on the mountains and they are told that Jesus will return just as he left meaning that when he returns his feet will be on the Mount of Olives so they watch him go up and then they know that he's going to come back in the same way they don't know when but they know that they are seeing and they're understanding their involvement with a prophecy that they has been going on for 500 years this must have blown their minds. I, I wonder, how was their hope affected? Okay, so they had a hope of how things were going to unfold. And I, I think initially they were probably disappointed that now was not the time that he was going to bring his kingdom the way they understood it was going to be brought. But then he gives them something, right? He says, it's not going to be now, but I have something for you. I'm a, you're going to receive power for this new task that I'm giving you. And you're going to be my witnesses. And I imagine that was, they had an excited hope for what God was having them join him in. Like, this is not what I expected, but God is including me in this plan that's slightly different than I envisioned it. And I wonder, have, have you ever had a hope like that where you thought something was going to, you know, something, is, I feel like this is going to happen. I really feel like God wants this to happen. And it doesn't happen that way. It takes some kind of turn that you're not anticipating, but God still uses that. And I'm thankful for the turn that, that it took for them because that meant that they went out and were witnesses, shared the gospel, and here we are, and we have been able to be a part of God's family through a chain of events because of that. I think that they were bursting with joy also that Jesus didn't say, eh, you know, Zechariah got a lot of things wrong. I'm just going to start over. But he says, things you've been hoping on are still going to happen, but later. So how is God calling you to respond to some of the promises that are in, uh, in this book? I realize that I've been reading it over and over and over and over again, <laughs> preparing for this time, than you haven't probably. But for me, I have a greater appreciation for how God used the prophets to inspire and direct followers to be his witnesses. 
I'm going to be thankful for that. But I also, the other thing that really I've been impressed, impressed on me was that we see so many times that God saves a remnant. God saves a remnant of Gentiles or a remnant of the, of the Jewish nation. And, you know, I want the people that are in my circle of influence, I want them to be a part of that. I want them to be a part of that remnant. I want them to be to know the Lord and worship him and be saved by him. And so this motivates me to pray and also to be a witness of the kind of God that, that we know and love so that they can too. This picture is a picture of the Mount of Olives and it's amazing to me to think about what happened there and what will happen there. Anyway, let's close up in prayer. Lord, um, thank you that you are sovereign, Lord. Thank you that your plans are not our plans. Lord, thank you that you were kind, so kind to us and to so many people to speak through the prophets. Thank you that you want more people to be in your kingdom, Lord. But thank you that you didn't just come and do things the way that um, uh, maybe some people would have preferred it happen, but that you had a, a greater plan. And we look forward to you coming back, and um, we look forward to being with you forever. And um, in the meantime, Lord, we help us to just witness and um, sing your praises here on this earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.